episode of Miss Motivation. Today I'll be featuring Second Chance Dreamer and an old friend Mike. Welcome. Hey, how you doing? Very good. Thanks for coming. I'm so excited to have you here and I want my listeners to get to know you a little bit better. So just a little history. Mike and I knew each other a long time ago from high school. We've kind of separated. You know, life has taken us in different directions. We've reconnected on Instagram, but I've always followed him. He's very into music. He's very creative. And he has an amazing story about his sobriety. So I'm going to give the mic over to him. All right, everybody. How you doing? Uh, Christina, thank you for having me here. And thank you for inviting me to be on the podcast. Um, like she said, we've known each other for quite some time now, early teenage years. And, you know, vice versa. I've always kept up with what you were doing. And throughout my life, you've been a positive inspiration to me as well. So I'm definitely very proud of you of what you're doing here. And, you know, the movement and the message that you're putting out here with, you know, Second Chance Dreamers and people who are looking to maybe go in a different direction of what the quote unquote regular run of the mill thing is to do or, you know, what the average person wants to do and taking a chance on themselves. You know, with saying that, I guess where I would get started with myself is I'm 34 years old, born and raised in Rockland County, New York. You know, growing up around here, average home life with my family, mother, father, brother, sister, and went to Catholic school most of my life growing up and, you know, didn't really have any set dream of like what I wanted to be. You know, there was never something like, you know, I played baseball, but I didn't say, hey, I'm going to play for the New York Yankees or, you know, I rollerbladed, skateboarded, did BMX, but wasn't going to be the next Tony Hawk or Sean White, you know? So it was just like, um, I was just a content person and living in the moment. And my main goal was always to be like in a crowd of people and make people feel happy and make people feel good. But, you know, I never knew how I was ever going to do that professionally. Now, I guess I'll, you know, fast forward to high school. I was more of like a class clown, smoked weed, uh, was making hip hop music, hung out with pretty much every group of person there was to hang out there, you know accepted into all crowds, all atmospheres, because I just tried to be a person of love and light and put that out there into the universe. And so, you know, I usually got a good reception to that and good feedback from, you know, everybody who I surrounded myself with. Fast forward to like my senior year of high school, uh, when people are deciding what they're going to do career wise, I was, I was pretty, I was pretty confused still. I'm like, hmm, what do I want to do? Like, I'm really into music. You know, I, I'm really into, you know, helping people feel better about themselves and, you know, do, doing the right thing with life and making a positive impact 
you know, which such inspirations is like John Lennon from the Beatles, Tom York from Radiohead, you know, those were like some musical influences, Tupac Shakur, um, people like that inspired me to like spark a change in the world to, you know, so that's what I wanted to do with my music or do with my life somehow, some way, but didn't know what I was going to do to do it. So I'm like, you know what, senior year, I'm going to really find some direction. I'm going to, you know, figure out what it is I'm going to do and what I'll major in, where I'm going to go to college, just like everybody else was doing. Except, you know, 17 years old, my senior year in early December of the year 2000, it was a weekend, a Friday night. Uh, This is where things get interesting. So if I've bored you at all, or, you know, you want to really get to, uh, the meat and potatoes of of what uh what my changes in my life or some uh, major changes that happened you know this is definitely the pinnacle of that um, I was driving some friends home from a party and it was a icy night it was December 9th 2000 and I was driving some friends home from Nyack New York to Valley College New York which was only supposed to be a 10 minute ride there and a 10 minute ride back and it turned into the ride that would change my life I was in a rollover in a Ford Explorer where I was a driver of the car with four other passengers and the tire on my car had blown out and as I was going around a turn and I lost control of the car and my car flipped over three times at which point I was ejected from uh, from the vehicle. Uh, it's always interesting uh, the way I feel when talking about that because as I sit here alive, knowing I'm here for like a real reason and saying that out loud, like I was ejected 60 feet out of a vehicle out the driver's side window and I'm here speaking, talking about it uh, is a miracle. So that was you know my first second chance to uh, to chase a dream after that. I was uh, I was laying in the street, looking up at the sky, 17 years old, not knowing if I was about to live or die. I was pretty sure I was about to die because the four passengers in the car were all standing above me, crying with their tears literally dropping on my face, saying he's dying. And I'm just laying there looking up at the sky saying, you know, God, if you are out there, Jesus, if you're out there, please, not now. Like, I have a life to live. You know, I I don't want this to be it. And uh, with that, I felt myself out of my body, now seeing my friends from above them, seeing, like, the back of their heads looking down at me. And that was (laughs) otherworldly, to say the least. In that moment, I was like, whoa, hold on, (laughs) Where am I? I'm supposed to be laying down there. Why am I up here? And then there was such a rush of emotion and adrenaline and, and feeling like going through whatever it was I was going through in that moment of crossing over to the other side and being somewhere else out of my body. And all of a sudden, boom, back in my body, hearing the ambulance sirens coming like piercing sound of ambulance sirens coming, knowing they're coming to save my life. Please, you know, get here fast is like what I'm thinking in my head. And, you know, screaming and crying from my friends and like, um, you know, them going through their emotions because, you know, they were, three of them were freshmen in high school. And my other best friend, uh, Chris Martin, who was, you know, sitting there, 
uh, holding my hand. I remember him being in the ambulance with me, uh, holding the oxygen mask over my mouth so I can breathe. And they were trying to keep me alive. And then I remember myself like looking at him from like the side of the ambulance, holding the oxygen mask on me. And I'm like, is that it? Am I gone? You know, am I gone? And then like being back in my body again and all, all of a sudden being at Nike hospital, boom, just like that, like in a hospital bed with my entire family, like crying, going through probably the most emotional time of any of their lives, you know, in the middle of the night, cousins, aunts, grandparents, everybody was there and like saying goodbye. You know, I was bleeding out of my ears. I was losing my peripheral vision and felt like I was like on the edge of, you know, crossing over. And I just remember looking at my mom and my family and everybody and them, you know, saying, no, not now, not Mikey. You know, they wanted, you know, they wanted me to stay. And it was, and it was like looking like I, I was about to, to pass away. And they, you know, they rushed me into, you know, a room where they were, you know, going to start bringing me to have tests done to see what was going, you know, what was going on. Now, my my damage that I had done to me was like, I mean, I told you earlier I was thrown 60 feet out of a car, but I wasn't broken arms, broken bones. I had no broken arms or broken legs. I couldn't move or anything, but like I hadn't broken anything but my one bone behind my ear called my mastoid bone, M-A-S-T. OID. And that's important to know because MAST is my initials and an alias that I go by. So I felt that was a synchronicity. You know, that was something that was connected somehow from that incident. Um, and it was the only tattoo I had on my body at that time said mast across my stomach. So, uh, you know, as they were um, doing tests on me, putting me in all these tubes uh, to, you know, do CAT scans on my head and see what was happening. And in that time, I was starting to slip in and out of a coma. And that was scary. Uh, if you've never been in a coma, I'll tell you uh, what it's like to be in a coma. Your eyes are closed. You're kind of sleeping, but you're not. You can hear some things going on around you. Um, and I don't know if that's for every coma, but the coma that I was in, I could actually hear the doctors talking to my parents and I couldn't respond. I couldn't, you know, I couldn't get involved in the conversation. I couldn't, you know, express any emotion. I was literally just laying there hearing a doctor come in and tell my mother and father and brother and sister and my whole entire family that there was a very good chance I wasn't going to make it. Um, you know, there was a 90% chance I wasn't going to survive. They had found out that I had three fractures to my skull, internal bleeding in my brain, and that they were going to need to do a surgery to relieve the swelling from my brain. And I'm laying there hearing all this. Like I'm hearing the doctors tell my parents that and I'm 17 years old. I'm like, oh my God, I'm having, I'm about to have brain surgery to save my life. And I might not make it out there's a pretty good chance I'm not coming out of this like and I couldn't cry I couldn't scream I could only listen to my father like try to console my mother who you know threw herself on the floor and you know was was unconsolable and uh you know and my brother and sister and everybody I could hear them you know the the sadness of them knowing that this is the reality that I was facing and uh you know I I remember the doctor telling my mom that, you know, they have to do the brain surgery. Um, we're going to do it on this day, you know, and it was like 
two days from that time. And it was going to be on my mother's birthday. I was having brain surgery to save my life on my mother's birthday. And I remember my mom saying, if, if Mikey comes out of the coma, though, don't tell him he's having brain surgery. Just tell him he's having a procedure. I don't want him to be scared. Meanwhile, I already knew. I'm laying there. I'm hearing everything. And I knew what was going to happen. And um, I came out of the coma because I was slipping in and out of it. And, you know, I came out of it. And I remember seeing my mom standing next to my bed. And it was the day of the brain surgery. And she said, oh, they're just going to take you in and run some more of those tests. And, you know, and in the back of my mind, I'm like, okay, mom, I didn't tell her I knew. I didn't tell her I knew. I'm like, I'm going in with like a slight chance that I might come out of this alive. And, you know, I just know this could be the last time I see my mother's face, my father's face, my brother and sister and my whole family. And um, everybody just wished me luck before I went in there. And um, I came out of that surgery Obviously, I'm here. Uh, uh, you know, <laughs> it was successful, but um, you know, I I came out of that surgery, and probably came to like a day or two later after having brain surgery, and it's not easy to describe what that's like. I didn't feel like myself. I didn't feel like the Mike Turco that I was before I went in there and had brain surgery. It was almost like I brought something more back some power some strength and i'm not saying i'm a superhero by any means i'm you know i'm equal to everybody out there listening to me right now but i brought something more that i had to give a message some kind of hope and knowing more than i had known before this incident had taken place and i i came to and was like just looking around the hospital room. And I remember there was some friends in the room there when I came to and my brother and some other people. And I had a big tube coming out of the top of my head and where they had opened my skull and, you know, done brain surgery on me. And I'm like, felt it. I'm like, whoa, whoa, like I survived. I'm alive. And then, you know, it was really bizarre and strange feeling, a feeling of uh, relief and at the same time, a feeling of confusion, like, where do I go from here? Like, what what's about to happen? I'm, you know, here I am now. I'm laying in a hospital bed, just, you know, fighting for my life still in ICU. It's December of my senior year of high school. Everybody's probably getting acceptance letters for colleges and stuff. And now where I am, I need to learn how to walk, talk, and speak again. Baby puzzles you know, baby steps, walking with a walker. Uh, and for somebody like me, I mean, I was so full of life and fast and, you know, doing extreme sports and everything. And now here I am all of a sudden, like literally like toddler, you need to learn how to eat. This is how you hold a fork. This is pronunciation of words and baby steps, the mechanics of walking, everything that I had taken for granted for the last 17 years was just taken from me and I had to fight for it back. You know, I had to literally, you know, make the comeback of my life in order to be fully functioning again. And I give that all up to God, Jesus Christ, who I consider my higher power. That doesn't necessarily have to be yours. Um, Everybody has their own higher power and I don't push that on anybody. And everybody has their own love and their own light that guides them that they have to find within themselves so i never try to like 
force that on people. Um, you know, I'm not preaching to try to change people's religion because I'm not a religious person. I'm a spiritual being having a human experience. So I just try to share that, you know, when I'm speaking of that, of that survival, I want people to know like, that's who I feel in my heart of hearts was there with me through my accident, through having brain surgery. That's what helped keep me alive. And that's who helped keep me alive. But like I said, everybody out there finds their own path, finds their own love, their own light, their own higher power, as long as it's something you know, good of love and light and positive guidance and positive change and moving onward and upward. If that's what is guiding you and that's the direction it's taking you, then I'm all for that. So you know, let me just fast forward a little bit. Being in the hospital, uh, learning how to walk again, learning how to talk again, returning back to school, you know, go back to school, can't keep up with my classwork now, you know, well, let me just touch on again, I learned how to fully, you know, function again, learned how to walk on my own, which they told me I wasn't going to be able to do. And now I walk, you know. I've been walking, I'm 34 now, I've been walking perfectly fine since I'm 17, I got that back completely, my peripheral vision came back to me completely, um, so, you know, obviously, um, speaking and, you know, my pronunciations and all that, you know, I was able to do that again, and I do it pretty exceptionally well, you know, because I use it to make music and to write lyrics and, you know, um, came back, I think I was even able to speak better and faster and uh, with more rhythm after that. But yeah, I returned back to high school and I, uh, you know, I couldn't keep up with my classwork and I felt like I didn't belong there anymore. I was like, hmm, this is strange. I don't see any need to really learn about math or, you know, science or this or the religion as they're like teaching it in a class. Like I just felt at a place. I was like, I felt like an alien, um, you know, just like everything in the world about schooling and occupations and everything seemed bizarre to me. And I was like, what am I going to do? Um, uh, it's important to note this too. Before leaving the hospital, my doctor who did my um, brain surgery on me told me, hey, um, I don't know if you drink or do drugs, but if you do, having one beer for you now will be like having 10 beers because of your brain surgery and your brain damage. Smoking one joint will be like smoking 10 joints for you. So, I mean, anybody out there who smokes or drinks and remembers being 17 years old, my first thought was, oh shit, that's awesome. You know? <laughs> you feel me? Yes. Like, oh great, I can get so much more high now off one joint. I mean, so that was that side of me that I hadn't figured out yet. That was that side of me that like, I wouldn't learn about until a few more years down the road. I continued to smoke weed even after having brain surgery and being uh, directed by, you know, the neurologist and people who, who, you know, helped save my life to not do that. And I was just kind of like, although I was so grateful, there was still this hold over me from like the duality of life of where like, hey, but I'm still in control. Like I'm going to do what I want still. I'm I'm 17. I'm still going to smoke weed and be at the parties and, you know, see Christina out, my other friends and be like, hey, I'm drunk. I'm here. I'm just like you guys, like freestyling and, you know, do, doing everything that other people my age do. I'm, I'm just like you guys. But the real fact of the matter was, no, I, you know, I wasn't. 
uh, had traumatic brain injury, um, dual diagnosed with, you know, uh, anxiety, depression, and, you know, the part of my story that's the most important is that, um, you know, found out I'm an addict. Um, I'm an alcoholic, you know, um, which I'm now in recovery for, which I'll get to later, you know, so let me get back to um, being in high school, you know, failing every class, being kind of like out of control, very defensive because of the brain surgery, feeling like I had to put off a little more tough persona, you know, like, okay, now I've got to defend myself because I can't have any more head trauma if I get into any fights, you know, what do guys do? Guys fight, you know, out at the bar uh, with other people. It's guys and girls, but, you know, there's a, a you know, kind of a masculine thing in high school where, you know, people want to, you know, be the toughest around. And my ego was like, hey, you got to be the toughest now because this happened to you. So you really got to put your, you know, put your game face on, um, put your shield up, essentially put a mask on and be somebody you're not. Because that is the reality of it, of what I did after my car accident. Like, my ego took control a little bit. Um, I got away from who I was truly supposed to become because I put a mask on. Stopped going to class. I started smoking weed, drinking excessively. And on top of that, I was experimenting with LSD heavily, um, psychedelic mushrooms heavily. DMT heavily, you know, I was experimenting with all these psychedelic drugs and like most people my age were doing, you know, like not most people, you know, but yeah, I mean, uh, most people around here in Rockland, yeah, Rockland County and Nyack and like this community, um, you know, it's, it's a cool melting pot around here and people are looking, searching for things and it's, you know, very artsy and there's a lot of money and there's a lot of drugs in the county. Uh, yeah, there is. And now, the difference between me and other people doing these things, though, were I was searching for that euphoric experience I had, you know, in my near-death experience. I was taking LSD for that, you know, not so much to be like, hey, I'm going to get creative and paint a mural right now on acid, or hey, I'm going to take acid and go see a concert and, you know, dance with glow sticks all night. Like, no, I was like, I was searching for something. I knew I was, you know, and like I've, I've read up on LSD and I've read up on DMT and, um, and things of that nature. I'm like, I'm going to, you know, find that through this. And, you know, I started dabbling and things like that. And, you know, that was senior year, early twenties. Let me run back. I graduated high school a year late being that I had the brain surgery. I got held back. So as all my friends went on to college, you know, that I was supposed to graduate with, they all went on, started their senior year. I was doing my senior year over because of the brain surgery and because I was unable to complete my courses and keep up with the curriculum. Uh, so I did my second senior year of high school and that was frustrating. And that was kind of like, I started to resent life. I'm like, this is bullshit. Like, yo, fuck this. I want to you know, be where my friends are. They're already in, they're already in college. They're out of high school. I'm back here with the kids that are younger than me. And that was like, I resented life. And then I started to like resent God. I started to resent the plan. Like, yo, this is not what, that's not fair. Like, how could this happen to me? You know, why do I feel so different? Why can't I keep up now? And, you know, so little did I know, I mean, I was doing the complete opposite of what I should have done is I, you know, so I started to backpedal and backtrack and do more substances out of anger and like 
looking for something more than what was the plan. So with that being said, you know, I never went to college. My second senior year, heavily drinking, heavily doing hallucinogenics and, you know, smoking weed. You know, I felt so lost and I was just like, you know what? I don't know what I'm going to do. I know what I'll do. I'll just stay at home, live at home for a little bit still. I'll sell some weed, go hang out with my friends still, chill down in Nyack and, you know, see see where this gets me. Just take it day by day. Hey, uh, you know, I'm living in the moment. I'm just going to do the hippie thing. Just sailing, catching the next wave and see where it takes me, which is awesome to do, but not while you're doing hallucinogenic drugs and not having direction and not really bringing true, pure positivity to yourself and other people. So that's what I started doing in, in my 20s. And after I graduated, at that time, uh, early 20s, I got offered a job by my father who saw that I was screwing up my life, obviously. I'm still living under his roof. I'm in my 20s now. My dad and my mom are really cool, laid-back people. Um, they were new. I'd been through so much. So they were like, you know, they were definitely um, very compassionate and empathetic as to what I'd gone through. And like, hey, looks like Mike's going to need a little extra time. You know, I fell down and bumped his head. Um, you know, so I, they were a little more lenient with me being in the house, seeing me struggling with substance abuse. And my dad was, my dad's awesome. I mean, um, I want to go on record and say that my father is my hero. You know, he's worked um, 12 hour nights for the past 40 years to create a beautiful family and provide for me and my mom, my brother and sister. So he's like, he's my hero. And my mother as well, my mother, who is, um, you know, I get my strength and my recovery from my father and from my mother as well, too. My mother is a two-time breast cancer survivor. So, like, I'm born of two amazing, beautiful people uh, who always pushed me in, but also didn't push me too hard and also gave me enough time to figure out things on my own. My father, uh, I believe I was probably 20 or 21, my father said to me, hey, Mike, you're going nowhere with your life. You know, and he said it as nice as he possibly could, but that's pretty much it. You know, hey, you're not doing anything with your life. You're kind of using your brain surgery and everything you went through as an excuse to be stagnant and not be productive and not be who you're truly meant to be, you know, and that must have been frustrating for him because I'm his son and he knows my potential. You know, he's raised me to be something different than what I was becoming. Uh, he provided me an opportunity, not my dream job by any means and i know he you know it's not his dream job either but he does what he you know he needs to do to provide and to be the man that he is he offered me a job and said hey i could get you a job down at the hunts point market where he works and i was like i don't know you know like but like what was i really thinking i don't know dad i'm you know i'm selling ounces of weed i'm gonna be oh you know, this is gonna be me for the rest of my life so you know that like that was my sick thinking was like no i'm just gonna you know i'm, I'm gonna hustle weed and sell ass and you know it's gonna be okay you know i got you know i got mushrooms it will be fine um but there was kind of like this moment where he's you know he got real serious and he was just like no you like either need to get out of the house then and live that path or you'll come down to the market with me to work. And I love him and respect him. And I took a chance and I said, you know what? Fine. He told me the money was good. And I'm like, all right, well, you know, I'm going to be making uh, over $1,000 a week. That's not bad for a dude who didn't go to college and has no college education, brain damage, and is just selling, you know, some weed and some other things at the time. So that seemed like um, 
that seemed like, hey, this is this will be a step in a positive direction, you know, since the car accident. So I started working night shifts with my father down in the Hunts Point Market. Him and I would drive into work at six o'clock at night and usually stay there till four o'clock, five o'clock in the morning. And anybody out there listening who doesn't know about the Hunts Point Market in the South Bronx, shit. You know, that is a wild place to be. Shout out to everybody who works down there and um, goes down there and works those crazy night hours to provide for their families and being such, uh, I mean, it's awesome. It's an awesome atmosphere. It's also wild in the same sense. Mostly uh, everybody down there, majority of people don't have a college education, are, you know, from off the streets, from the boroughs and go down there because the money is good and the lifestyle is tough though, you know? So, um, I went down there and, you know, I was definitely one of the younger guys down there. I'm in the South Bronx coming to work from Nyack, you know, and met a whole bunch of amazing, great people down there too. Um, absolutely amazing people worked alongside my father, started to make some good money, you know, um, went from unloading trucks as a porter so, you know, the shipments of trucks would come in and lettuce, broccoli, vegetables. You take them off the trucks, bring them into your warehouse where my father would then sell them and the other salesmen there. Um, so I started, you know, at the bottom and uh, as, as far as in the company went and was just a porter and would do that. And then I'd run orders from our store to other people and trucking companies that were picking up, you know, for bodegas in the city or mom and pop stores or, you know, other chains around your supermarkets. I'd be pulling orders from our warehouse and delivering it to them. So I did that for like a year and I was still, you know, smoking weed, drinking, uh, making good money. And my life was still like a little bit manageable at that point. And I had, quote unquote, a career, somewhat, you know, I was down there and I'm like, this is pretty good, you know, Um, I could do this, my dad's been doing it for 40 years, it's not that bad. With that, I got a promotion and I was asked by the owner of the company if I wanted to try to be a salesman and do what my father did. And I was like, cool, yeah, yeah, I'll do that. And it meant more money. So it's like young 20s looking to make more money. My ego is telling me, hey, yeah, take this, you know, take this promotion, take this opportunity because then you're kind of catching up and even doing better than some of your friends that were in college. Hey, you're going to be making like $1,500 a week, even more than that sometimes. That's, yeah, that, this sounds like the thing to do. So, you know, I was going to start working alongside my father as his assistant and learn how to be a salesman. Um, my father's one of the best salesmen down in the Hunts Point market. So it was an honor and privilege to learn through him and from him. So, you know, I did that and I started to learn to be a salesman and I have a very outgoing personality. As you see, you know, I'll grab this microphone. I haven't shut up yet. So that's part of being a salesman is sitting across from somebody like I'm sitting here with you and being able to captivate. Exactly. And you got to do that with sales because there's people down there selling the same stuff, but you want them to like your personality a little bit better. Like, hey, let me go see Mikey over here because Mike Turco is not only going to sell me this, but I'm going to get a couple jokes and a laugh with him too, you know? And it's because uh, that's what I try to do. I try to make people's night, day, no matter what the situation or, you know, circumstances, the interaction. I want to try to make it positive, funny, upbeat. So that was awesome. You know, I became a salesman. And 
I started selling uh, to my own customers and it was amazing. It was great. And, you know, all while that was going on, uh, working night hours was tough. And my father knew that too. And my father knew like I really didn't want to work nights and a gift and a curse came. You know, I got offered a job opportunity to work at the same place, but except work day shift now. All right, cool. Working four in the morning till about two, three in the afternoon. That's a little bit better. I'll still have the nights. I'll see my other friends who are working. Now I'm not like a bat and, you know, working at night and I'm kind of getting into the regular schedule of other people. I'm close. I'm closing in on it. So I took that opportunity and I was a day salesman at the Hunts Point Market for, uh, you know, a very big company there. Definitely one of the biggest fruits and vegetable companies in the Hunts Point Market. And so I had an awesome opportunity to do that. And with that, you know, I met some people down at the market. Okay. You know, I'm, I won't mention any names or anything like that. Cause that's just, you know, that's part of how it goes. Um, but I met some people down there and they were heavily involved with cocaine. Cause like I said, it's a wild place down there. So I just was, I, I remember I was tired one morning I was up in the bathroom, you know, just had to use the restroom before work got started and bumped into like who I thought then was the right person at the right time. And it turned out to be the complete opposite. You know, it was still that inner part of me that I didn't know was an addict yet. That was still like calling all the shots and thinking like, hey, this is it. This is like chase this dream, which was actually a nightmare. But it was like, hey, no, this this dream, you know, chase that like this is awesome. This person's giving us an opportunity to, I'm going to be working here at the market day shift now. And now somebody wants me to work with them too, selling drugs and not just selling weed anymore, but selling cocaine, way more money. And I'm getting it from these people who are known for having the best cocaine. And I'm getting it for a cheaper price that I'm going to bring home to like where I live. And I'm going to really, you know, cashing in on this. So at that point, you know, and I hadn't really even done coke at that time. I was just like smoking weed and, you know, still just doing my thing with drinking. So I wasn't even really into cocaine until I got into the market. And then I did with uh, what a famous hip hop song tells you not to do by Biggie Smalls. Don't get high on your own supply. Well, shit. Guess who? (laughs) Guess who broke that law of the Ten Crack Commandments? Yours truly. So with this that I felt was oh my God, this is a blessing. You know, I met this guy, I'm getting this hookup and I'm making this money. You know, I got myself a nice apartment right now. Got myself a nice girlfriend, got myself a car. I'm doing good. It appears on paper that I am becoming successful. And I've got this little other side of me too that nobody really knows about, right? So with that, I continued to work down there for, you know, a few years. I worked down in the market for like six, seven years with my life being somewhat manageable. I was a functioning addict slash produce salesman slash drug dealer, <laughs> you know, that those were like two different occupations, uh, um, Jekyll and Hyde, if you will. My life slowly started to unravel as like I got away from hanging out with people that I grew up with, such as yourself. Perfect example. I'd see you, some of your other friends at parties, people who were like my friends, 
good vibe, good atmosphere, positivity, creativity, moving onward and upward. And I started to like drift off slowly to the side, like not my friends I used to hang out at the backyard parties with anymore, skate with. Um, now I'm hanging out with people who are hustling, making money. Yeah. I started to cross into like a different world and then getting connected to the people back home who are also hustling to like to them. I was also like I was there in with these other people, too. So it was like my ego was being fed, you know, not my spirit. My ego was being fed. And now once again, that goes back to like this persona that I want to be. Plus, I make rap music, you know, so this goes this all gets tied into that. Like, oh, yeah, no, you're quote unquote, you're a real rapper now. Now you could rap. Now you could back it up because you're actually selling coke and you're actually hanging out with people who are doing it too, who are dangerous people. And in the midst of that, what had I done though? I'd lost and pushed away all my real true friends who were there for me at the time of my accident. I was becoming more and more distant from my unconditional love I received from my family because they knew something was going on, you know? I wasn't showing up to like family parties anymore and when I'd see my mom, she'd be like, oh, you lost weight, you look different, you're, you know, you're not calling us as much, you're not coming by to see us. Uh, so she knew that something else was going on, you know, mother's instinct. Then my father knew something was happening too because, you know, I stopped selling as much and you know what I started doing instead of selling it? What do you think I started doing? Using it. Using it. Exactly. Bam. Number one answer. With cocaine use comes paranoia. Okay. So I started to get so paranoid. People I knew were getting locked up. Best friend of mine was doing prison bid for a few years. So I still felt obligated, though, to buy this large quantity of cocaine that I was getting from this dude because I don't want him to think that, I'm not with it no more or I'm something might happen and make him nervous and paranoid because like these dudes could kill me. You know, like I could potentially get hurt if they start to, you know, think the wrong thing, which in all reality, really what was just happening was I was just starting to get high on my own supply. So I was at the time I was buying a week. Yeah, I wasn't like Boston George by any means, but I was buying at least 100 grams of cocaine a week. I'm horrible with mathematics, but at the time I was paying $20 per gram of cocaine. So, which back home it was selling for $60 a gram, $80. And I was getting stuff from some dudes that were Mexicans tied into some heavy gangs and shit. So, I was getting it before it was cut, stepped on. So, you know, I was getting great. Well, there's no such thing as great coke. Let me tell you that it's all bullshit. It's a false sense of happiness, a fake euphoria. But um, I was getting what's quote-unquote potent, pure cocaine. So, you know, I was still getting that amount, right? And still trying to, like, divvy it out to people who I trusted. And then I'm, like, still left with a lot. So now I'm just I'm sniffing coke throughout the day. It becomes, like, oxygen to me. Like, literally oxygen. I can't get out of the car and go into the store without sniffing and, like, sniffing a poisonous substance into my body and it's crazy like yes this is the same person who fought for their life in ICU brain surgery knows the dangers of drugs and now I'm at a point where I'm so deep into my addiction that I'm literally doing one of the worst substances now beyond the weed and the alcohol now I'm literally sniffing coke from the time I wake up to the time I can pass out somehow 
and start the next day. So where this is leading to is, you know, I'm still working at that job too. You know, keep that in mind. I'm still selling produce, still going to work four o'clock in the morning. Um, now somebody who's doing cocaine as much as I was, it's not a shock and surprise to let you know I was showing up to work late. I was not getting there on time at 4 a.m. in the morning. In fact, I'd wake up and, you know, after passing out, gyrating from how much coke I'd done, look at my clock and it'd be like six o'clock in the morning. Now, the worst part is I'm the person who was covering for my father. When I get there, he could leave. I'm already two hours late to work. Now the red flags are really starting to show up. And Christina, I'm telling you, this is really like honestly, truly how I was feeling. I'd wake up for work like an hour and a half, two hours late, knowing my dad's work in the Bronx still. I'm just leaving my apartment in Nyack. They're doing work on the Tappan Zee Bridge, you know, when they were repairing it, getting ready to make the new bridge, where they'd shut it down for like 20 minutes at a time. I'm in traffic there. My dad's calling me. He's like, where the fuck are you? What's going on? I'm at work here, and you got me staying here an extra two fucking hours. You know, you better let me know what's happened with you. And in that moment, you know what I did? I looked over to the side of the bridge, and I'm like, get out. Get out and fucking jump off the Tappanzee Bridge. Like, ended. That's literally how I felt. You know, I'm looking you in your eyes and telling you that. And I know you know it's real because I genuinely... I was like, don't even drive in. Don't. Like, don't face him. Don't like the shame, the guilt, the pain I knew I was putting him through. I didn't want to face him. And I thought about it. And, you know, in that moment, thank God, one of my guardian angels, my earth angel calls me, mom. <laughs> and mom's like, where the fuck are you? You know, my, my Italian mom, where the fuck are you? You know, your father is at work. He is pissed. He's going to kick your fucking ass and I'm like mom and then y'all I'm looking for sympathy I'm like I'm on the bridge I'm about to fucking jump off don't talk to me right now she's like calm down calm down and you know and I'm just like no I'm gonna get out the car and I'm jumping off the bridge nobody's gonna see me hear me and it wasn't like it wasn't an empty threat because I was like in the midst of actually you know balancing out the pros and cons of doing a belly flop off the highest part of the Tappan Zee Bridge yeah. you know my mom talked me down off the bridge, you know, and was just like, get into work there. You're coming over. And after work, we're going to talk about what's going on. And, you know, you, you have to let us know what's going on. So, you know, I, I went to work. My father was there. He looked at me and just walked out. Didn't even say anything. He was disgusted. You know, he didn't want to embarrass himself in front of people on the job. I gave them some shitty, lame-ass excuse. I worked throughout the day. And, of course, I mean, need to let it be known I was doing coke on the way into work too, you know what I mean? And once I got there, I couldn't even stop, even knowing that was happening. Knowing I had to see them after and explain why I can't get to this job on time, this awesome job my father got me, I still went into work and was sniffing coke up in the bathroom. You know what I used to call it? Coffee. I tell the guy I'm working with, and he, you know, one of the guys I was working with knew what I was up to too, and he kind of did his own little thing, not on the scale I did, but I was like, I'm going to go upstairs and uh, you know, get, go get some coffee. He knew what I was talking about. So, you know, I did that, went home, and I went home, and I had to face the music. I had to tell my folks what was going on. I had to tell my dad what I was doing with the opportunity that he had gave me and what I had turned it into. And I had turned this awesome salesman job at the Hunts Point Market, tried to intertwine and combine being a cocaine dealer, and I have turned into 
a cocaine user and I'm like full blown in addiction. My life is completely unmanageable. And I knew, you know, I knew in that moment that I needed help. Uh, you know, I knew there was something going on. My boss at the job, he said to me, this guy said verbatim like this. And uh, I hope the listeners out there appreciate this and get a laugh from it. That day before I left work, he said, uh, Mr. Turco, the next time you come into work late, your excuse better be is that you're dead. And I was like, oh, okay. Uh, yeah, I got you, boss. No problem. He's like, don't come into my place fucking late again. You understand me? I'm like, I got you, man. I'll be here on time. <sighs> well, the next day, <laughs> literally the next day, I'm on the bridge again. And I'm about to you know, cross the bridge. I get onto the Bronx River Parkway. I call him and I say, hey, Mr. So-and-so, I'm dead. And he was like, good luck. Boom. You know, Liam Neeson from Taken. Good luck. You know, and that was it. I lost a job. It like, there goes like this one chance that, you know, me having brain surgery, not going to college, not having like what I felt was a fair shot at starting a career, starting my life. I had this opportunity. I'm here. I'm making like great money. You know, that's awesome money to be making $1,500 a week, you know. And I'm selling this cocaine on top of it. I just lost a job, which means I'm not going down to the market anymore. I'm not getting the other stuff I was getting anymore. No more getting the cocaine because I'm not going to just drive down there to get that. And I knew I had to distance myself from it and get away from it. So that was probably at age 27. I'd lost that job. I wasn't living home, but my parents didn't want me around anymore. And I lost my apartment. And in the midst of that, um, I had lost my driver's license because I had got pulled over with cocaine on me in the car. I had gotten in some other trouble, um, you know, in the midst of using cocaine, breaking and entering charge, uh, assault with a deadly weapon charge. I was facing three to five years in prison. Um, and that's a whole different podcast. That's a whole different story. But that was just like some of the things that my addiction was taking me into um, after I lost that job. I mean... That's crazy stuff. I mean, that, you know, 14, 15 year old me would have never seen me doing these other things I was doing. So here I am, no job, nowhere to live, no money coming in, and I get another chance. So, like, I'm not just like a second chance dreamer. I was getting all these, you know, other chances. Here comes your third chance.